0: Or with the stand, you're like, I am need to get to my spot and take this thing off. Yeah, because with the saddle, you're just kind of walking. You don't feel like you're yeah. carrying. I don't, there's a difference between walking and carrying. With the saddle, I feel like I'm walking. With the stand, I feel like I'm carrying. out here show episode not gonna have too much of an intro we got a bunch of different stuff that we're going to talk about and go over a bunch of just really different stuff um, but as usual I'll send it over to Brody to talk about kind of what we've been doing as we get probably four weeks or so out here from deer season yep so it's pretty pretty similar to what we've been doing but now we're sort of putting trail cameras up we're checking trail cameras and we're doing velvet scouting going full bore into both of those we did that last week in the Totally surprised us and blew us out of the water on the place uh, that we were velvet scouting and checking these trail cameras on. We didn't really expect it on this piece of property. All these pieces are new. So, you know, we didn't know what to expect. We thought this property had potential. We didn't really know it was going to be as good as it was. We velvet scouted it and saw a bunch of bucks and then we checked the trail cameras and had a bunch of nice bucks on there. So it's kind of a weird property, but it pretty much blew us out of the water. So that was good. Checked another one and Again, new property, just trying to see, you know, if there was deer in the area, what it would be like. And there was deer and bucks there pretty much every day. So that was another surprise as well. So our early season is uh, starting to heat up. Our early season setups and potential setups are starting to heat up with these truck cam and checks and velvet skating that we're doing. Yeah, so that's pretty much just like a, oh, half acre by half acre section, two of them. And there's at least five bucks probably on each section. So it's definitely a lot of high density deer high density buck area. Chuck hems that have been up for, this one was 14 days and had deer on it every day and probably bucks on it half the time, which is pretty good for only been up 14 days and having that much uh, deer movement on them. Yeah, we don't usually have much luck getting velvet deer on camera on public, but these ones have worked out really well. So we're obviously planning about how we're gonna go after all those bucks, gonna do some more velvet scouting. The video of that velvet scout should be out by the time this, uh, Podcast goes up, so definitely head over to our White Tail Instinct channel where we show all this stuff that the hunting stuff that we're talking about. Uh, head over there and watch it because there's some pretty good bucks on there that hopefully we'll get a better, more close encounter with come September first, second, third, fourth, fifth. So hopefully it doesn't take five days, but hopefully we get done right away. But definitely some good stuff on the horizon for deer season. Uh, that's only four weeks away. So uh, with that, we'll move on to the first story that we want to talk about. This is a Realtree.com article, and it was a bunch of myths, so fact or fiction, whether these hunting, you know, things that are commonly said, whether it's actually fact or fiction. So we'll go over them, uh, tell you what the Realtree.com article said, whether it was fact or fiction, and then we'll kind of talk about it and see what we think if we agree or disagree. So the first one is that you can look at a track and tell if it is a buck or a doe. They say that that's fiction, that you can't actually do that. I just what your thoughts were on that first one. I'd say that's true. I'm not going to say every time you look at a track, you're going to say, that's a doe or that's a buck, and it's going to be right. But I think the majority of the time you can, a buck track is going to be bigger. I mean, in that... my opinion, I mean, I think you can tell. I mean, there's going to be instances where they're pretty similar, like a young buck and an old doe are going to be pretty similar. But a big mature buck and a doe, there's going to be a difference. I think that's true. Yeah, there's going to be some mature does that you might get some claws in. You know, that's usually the difference. Big splayed out toes, and then, you know, the track's actually big. And then you're seeing the dew claws on the backside of the track. That's usually, you know, majority of the time a buck track. You might get a doe that if you get soft mud or sand along the river or something where she might sink in that far. But then again, you have to take that with a grain of salt and look at what kind of stuff that the deer is stepping in. But I'm with you. I think it's true. I think the majority of the time, I don't, you can't say anything for certain. There's no way with to anything. know for sure what made that track, but I think you can tell the majority of the time. Yeah, there's always exceptions, but I think like you said, the majority of the time you can walk up and go, Oh yep, yeah, that's a buck track. I don't think that's a myth. So um the next That's how they I mean that's what they used to use. <laughs> I mean that's back a, before we had trail cameras and all this software stuff and a bunch of studies and science and people hunting and sharing their information, that was the basic woodsmanship was telling the difference between tracks. There's a lot of guys up north that just track some people hunt just by tracking deer, but they and use they know which the one's track. a buck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so obviously there's some merit to it. Yep. Um, the second one is you can tell the size of a buck by the size of the rub. They again say that you can't, that that's fake, that that's fiction. So do you think you can tell the size of the buck by the size of the rub that you're seeing? I'd lean towards that one more being false as opposed to the earlier one, just because a little buck can make a big rub and a big buck can make a small rub so i think there's probably more variance in in that than the whole track thing but i think you can you can tell somewhat maybe i know dan talks about the height of the rub maybe being a better teller than the size of the rub Mm -hmm. itself yeah i mean i was thinking i think there's a fact in there i mean you get we get cedar trees everywhere here in nebraska as long as well as you know everybody else does every other state but there's cedar trees that just get destroyed with waist high rubs of cedar trees, you know, a good eight inches, nine, ten inches around and it's just destroyed and you can't tell me that's not a good sized buck making that rub. Yeah. Maybe it's not, but I don't think there's a little buck's gonna do that. You get a little tree that's destroyed, there's no way to tell. I've seen little bucks destroy cedar little tiny, you know, two foot high cedar trees. But the and big rubs big bucks I think it makes a difference. Go to trees this big and just destroy them because they're just trying to push it around a little yeah. bit. And I've seen little bucks go to little trees too, so yeah, I think there's a little more variance in that, but like you said, I think you can you can gain a little bit of information. Yeah, I don't think... That one's probably more of a 50-50 than the, if you, no, the track. track one. Um, the third one is that bumped bucks leave the county. <laughs> they say, again, that that's... They say that's a myth, so they say that's fake. That's not... They agree that they don't actually do that. We're pretty much well-spoken, if you've watched our stuff, that we don't believe that that stuff's true. Yeah, I would agree with that one. That one's true as well. That one wasn't probably as agreed upon five years ago as it is now with the style of hunting and hunting public and Dan Infall and everybody showing that that's not always the case. Every buck's different but I think that's changed. Thinking on that's changed recently for sure. Yeah I'd say within the last two years probably people finally started to (laughs) feel like they could say that on social media because it was pretty common-held belief that if you bumped a buck, he was gone. I don't know. That's just the private land way of hunting that was popular at that time. They didn't want to bump anything. They are ultra careful. And that's just kind of the myth that got spread. But I don't think that's definitely a myth to me anyway. So um, another one that's hotly contested um, is the October, October lull. And is it real or not? They say it's fake. It's fiction. That it is a myth. That the October lull is not real. I would probably tend to agree because it can, deer movements are so varied no matter where you are. I can sit on one side of the property and not see a thing just because of where I chose to set up and you can go and see and you think October 15th, the rut's just going crazy. So like, I think deer movements are so varied just where you sit or where you're at that the October law is not not a thing. Yeah, They're I, out there somewhere. Yeah, I don't <laughs> They're know out that, there somewhere. I don't know that there's any, what science basis is there for it. Why would they be even less active in October than they would be in September. Like, they're not going to be even any less active than when it's hot out and 98 degrees out. And they're active right now. When we went and did velvet scouting, they were out two and a half hours before dark just walking around. And it was 89 degrees out. So I don't think there's... I wondered what they would cite as scientific factors for or what they believe the reason is for. A lot of people say, oh, it's because of hunting pressure. If it's because of hunting pressure, why would they just stop moving for a week and then keep going they're just going to move and go somewhere else they just can't not move like you said they're out there somewhere they just maybe they just moved on yet probably yeah they're just moving around like you said they're out there somewhere it's just finding them maybe your traditional early season spots ain't working i think that's some of it your early season spot is you know movements different so early season's not working november rut spots aren't working you just got to find october spots to sit yeah i think it's kind of more of just a hunting industry term that somebody coined Kind and now it, on it caught, caught on. Yeah. I don't think it's really any merit for it. And they've actually done scientific studies on the other side that proves deer movement, there's a steady increase from September through November of deer movement. So there's scientific basis to say that it is fake and that the rule is not actually real versus the other way around. So um, deer do, don't move when it's windy. Again, they, they went all myth on all of their. So again, they're saying that's fake, that deer actually move when it's windy. Yes, I would agree with that as well. They don't like wake up and go, oh crap, 50 mile an hour winds I got to sit here today and not go eat or not go chase this doe around or and that kind of thing. I would agree with that. I think that's pretty simple. Yeah, just like here in Nebraska, we get used to the wind. windy every day. (laughs) And they live outside. (laughs) They're used to the wind. It's not, they're not just not going to move. They're wild animals. They live outside. If it was up, if that was the case, when it got to 20 degrees out, they just wouldn't move because it's cold. Like you can't, it's just a weather factor. They're still going to move. They might move in a different spot. They might bed in a different spot, but they're still going to get up and move. Like we may hunting in it, may hate hunting in it, but they're still going to, they're still going to move. I don't think there's any merit to that one. They're just going to move in different areas, in different ways. Uh, Finally, the last one, hunting scrapes is tactically sound. And they're saying that that's a myth that is not tactically sound to hunt over scrapes. So they're saying it's, like, that's saying it's not a good idea to hunt Not a good idea to hunt over scrapes. Mm, I'm far from an expert, that's for sure, on this subject. But I would say you can hunt scrapes if you know which ones to hunt. And I'm basically taking this off of some of what we've seen and what guys that know a lot more than me know. And I know Dan's talked about it depends on which scrapes you set up on. If you're setting up on field edge scrapes, you know, it's probably not going to be very reliable. But if you're sitting up on those scrapes that are right outside the bedding areas, it's going to be a little bit more reliable for you and a little bit, you know, easier to hunt. You'll get better results, I think. Yeah. So I wrote down, I'm not really sure where I stand because, but like you said, I think it has a lot of that activity has, you know, happens at night. But like you said, if you set up close to the bedding and there's a scrape, like I think Warb shot a buck, I don't know if it was when you were down there or the year after on his dad's place over a scrape and the buck was checking it, you know, obviously not in the dark, but that one was closer to bedding than if you hit these field edge scrapes where a lot of guys on public like to sit, even private land guys like to sit on those food plots. I think that's where you get to the point where he's not going to check it until, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And then that's why you think it's not tactically sound, where if you move back to the bedding area ones, it's a perfectly acceptable way, (laughs) you know, to get your deer. I think it all kind of runs together a little bit in saying that you got to be where the deer are. If that scrape is close to where that deer is, then you're probably going to see him there. If it's far away and he's not going to get there till night, then you're probably not going to see him and scrapes may not be reliable. So I think it's putting all that together, being situational, situational tactics, as they all say, and uh, kind of putting that together to hunt scrapes. As we say, it all depends on probably location. It's where, what that scrape is relative to as to whether it's good. So. And same thing with rubs, too. Location. You can find rubs everywhere, but if you're finding them in a buck bed, that means a little bit more than finding it on the edge of a field. So same thing with that location. Yep. So I think the key with a lot of those is just that they're none of them are ever one hundred percent. But a lot of them might be more overblown and talked about than they actually are. But we've talked about just in the few episodes we've done of this podcast already. Everything's situational. Everything's different. Nothing is one hundred percent absolute. You know, as much as a hunting industry wants you to believe that, whether it be a product or what they're, you know, telling you on their show, nothing is absolute. There's always an exception to the rule that's true with just about anything. Um, so now we'll move on to our outer left field segment. So where we talk, you know, a little bit about everything to do with sports and nothing to do with hunting. So if we have any Oklahoma or Texas people, you guys are probably up in arms or you might be happy about this. Um, me and Brady have talked about it quite a bit when we've got together over the last few days. But Texas and Oklahoma looking to leave the Big Twelve—they are leaving. They are. Did you I see that say, today? I just seen today that now it's. I said looking to, but they have for, they formally put in their you know request or whatever today. So it looks like they are leaving. It's just how soon and when. I uh, just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Good, bad, and different. What it looks like for the rest of college football. Probably who knows at this point. It's going to be a giant mess. Yeah, it went from. I heard it and thought this is probably not true. This is a reporter trying to get press. And then it went from not true to true pretty quick. (laughs) But, yeah, they're looking to leave. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it's good for Texas. It's in – we're in Nebraska here. So Nebraska moved from the Big 12 to the Big 10 in like 2010-ish. When we were trying to rebuild, essentially, and we've been trying to rebuild for forever. And it's hard to rebuild in the Big Ten because the Big Ten's a good conference. I think Texas is gonna run into the same thing, trying to rebuild after uh, Herman was there, that experiment didn't work. So they're trying to rebuild and get back to national prominence and doing that in the SEC is even harder than doing that in the Big Ten. So I think that's not gonna work out well for them trying to play those teams and rebuild. Oklahoma will probably fare better, but still you could be third in your conference and not make it to the to the playoff where you could have been first in the Big 12 and made it to your playoff. So I think for them, they're looking at it from a money standpoint, I think it's a big driver. But football wise, I think it could be a little worse off for them. Yeah, I mean, I understand looking at it from a money perspective, but football drives the money. And if your football program isn't winning a Big 12 championship every year or Texas it's easier, like you mentioned, it's way easier to have a new coach come in and build your program back to where you want it to be in a conference you know, in teams you That you, you know. can dominate. Speaking that from you ne- have Nebraska experience, when we moved to the Big Ten, so much recruiting had to change that we had no chance for the first four years. The coach that was there at that time probably screwed. They're not going to give you enough time to get the players in that you need because you're going to need a shift. Those Big 12 offenses and defense— are going to have to make a total recruiting shift. You better start recruiting for the SEC right now. Who cares about the Big 12 the next four years? If you're leaving, recruit for the SEC because it's going to be such a different change. It could set you back, ask Nebraska. It set us back 10, 15 years. Yeah, and like I said, rebuilding when you're playing Alabama and Florida and Georgia every single year is going to be hard. Like Oklahoma... They can play them one game a year in the playoff and maybe fare pretty well. But when you're playing that every week when you're used to playing the Kansases and Kansas' states of the world, it's going to be a lot tougher than you think. Money's the driver, but that's maybe an unintended consequence? Yeah, it makes more sense for Oklahoma, I think, than it does Texas. But yeah. Texas and Oklahoma, as much as they hate each other, are tied at the hip. Yeah, they're Oklahoma goes do with together. Texas wherever they go. And, I mean, it makes a whole... What they do then, you know, obviously shapes everything else. So there's going to be... Who knows where all the other teams are going to go. Big 12 is probably dead. <laughs> yeah, I just Isn't wonder it just- what it does for the teams. Because there's talk of being the SEC making this big 32-team conference. But what's that do for the teams outside the 32? So what's it do for a Nebraska if they don't make it in? And Iowa if they don't make it in? Illinois, those types of teams that don't make it in. What's it do for them, is the football not a thing for them anymore? Because that's a lot of money that comes in every year yeah. for a lot of schools that now nobody's watching and nobody cares about. Because you're not in the top 32, can you, can you work your way into the top 32 every year? Yeah. Can you get kicked out? Like, what's it do for those those teams that have football that's not in the 32? And then, what's it do for volleyball and wrestling and basketball? Like, those programs still gotta exist too. When you can't win a American Conference Championship or a Pac-12 Championship and still be on the only game on championship week for your conference. That's still a big deal, but if you're not in the smaller conference or yeah. in that big conference, it has a whole big mess. Yeah, and then do those other teams that aren't in the 32, can they still play for a national championship? And then can the – is basketball just create their own division? And still, you know, are the teams that are in the 32, are they all terrible at basketball? So Kentucky and the SEC wins it every year because all the other teams suck? Like how does it – how does this work for those other teams? And do you put – does Nebraska footballs not – we're average at best right now, but what do you put you them win? in because our fan base is huge, we bring in a lot of money? Yeah. Do, like, what teams get in? And hope they, they get better, or season? do you wait till we're better, and then can we get in? Because what happens if, you know, you just use Nebraska, for an example, or even Iowa or whoever, they're not good enough to get into the top 32 teams now, but what happens in 10 years, they're kicking butt, and they should be in there. So then do you realign again and kick people out? Like yeah. it's just mass chaos is what it looks like to me. And prob- <laughs> I think, possibly, could we the end of the NCAA. They talked think about it this a, year, but it will be the end of the NCAA. Yeah, I think that's a definite, and I think that's why the SEC's doing it now. They waited for the NIL to happen, and that was their chance to say, nope, no more NCAA. They're going to take over the conference. I don't know. It's just going to be complete chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be messed up. It's probably a topic we'll come back to uh, for our Outer Left Field segment. As people get but realigned to different places. But let us know what you think. Is Oklahoma and Texas going there a good thing? Is SEC taking everybody and like they're talking about taking michigan and ohio state and clemson and putting them down in there what do you guys think the conferences should look like or what should they do and with that we'll move on to our more traditional hunting stuff here we're going to talk tree stand versus tree saddle um this is a mossy article from just this last june if you want to go look at it yourself We use a little bit of both, but it's a hotly contested deal. There's tree stand guys making fun of saddle hunter guys just because they're trying something new. Again, it's a hunting industry deal on social media. Uh, You know, trying to find the which one's better type of deal. Um, And there's a lot of people ground hunting, but still hunting hunting from the air or from above is still the big you know the majority of the way that people hunt whitetails. Um, And just kind of wondered, real quick, what your thoughts were. The difference between tree stand and saddle and we will kind of go in to detail a little bit more. But for me, just, you know, hunting higher, not hunting on the ground, just better sight and better vision. That's why I prefer to hunt from a tree stand or tree saddle if I can over hunting the ground. Yeah, I think same for me, just being able to see. I feel like when I'm on the ground, I can't see. And that's probably really not the biggest thing. Because if he still walks there, he still walks where I can shoot him. But I just like being able to see. I feel like I'm always missing something if I'm not in the air i mean ground setups are fine and we'll do them but i like to be able to see when i can yeah and it's not as much a you know hunting from a tree stand deal because i think they can't see me as much i can hide just as well in the ground like you said it's just being able to see better from you know up higher not really like i said you can hide as good in both places i think sometimes people say yeah they don't look up you know but they look up just as much now as they ever have before so Um, And I think for us filming too, I think it's easier to film by myself in a tree as opposed to by myself on the ground. If you're there filming with me, both work, but if you're by yourself, filming from a tree works a little easier. Yep. Um, The first thing they talked about was if there was a big difference in safety between a tree stand and a tree saddle. What were your initial thoughts on safety, tree stand versus tree saddle? I feel like a tree saddle, you are safer because it feels like you're always hooked up and like there really truly is no way to like really fall out of a tree saddle i mean you should always be hooked up in a tree stand too because you should tie your lineman's rope up and hook into it but there's kind of the the transfer from stick to stand stand back to stick and that kind of thing i think maybe can get tricky i feel like if you're on a saddle you're always kind of hooked in making sure everything's hooked up and then the opportunity for failure is maybe less so i feel like a saddle's probably safer you're always just like something's always got you <laughs> Yeah, there's not that big, like you said, jump from going from your sticks to your stand. There's none of that repositioning. Transfer, you just yeah. go up and you're there. And like you said, you got your lineman, lineman's belt on. But like you said, if you're doing what you're supposed to, I don't think You are always kind of be hooked yeah, in. Either way, tree stand or mm-hmm. tree saddle, if you're doing what you're supposed to, you should always be hooked up. Like With the saddle, like you said, you're always pretty much tied... To the tree, which you should be with a stand, too, though. So, that doesn't really yeah. make too much of a difference. There's just less of that, you know, like I mentioned, that transition, that big yeah, transition. The opportunity to slip or misstep or that kind of thing. Because you're always just there facing the tree. I think that's some, too. You're facing the tree, so you can, like, grab it. <laughs> yeah. If you happen to fall or, like, when you fall, you fall into the tree where you might be, you know, this far out from your tree stand and you might fall off it. Or yeah, something. or you get a tree stand strap that breaks you should be hooked in yeah. but there's you're still falling down but you should still be caught the same thing with a there isn't much a tree falling saddle you're just pretty much stuck right you're there. falling into the tree there isn't much falling down yeah with a with a saddle which is maybe easier on your body if you happen to slip yeah the only thing with a stand safety wise or perceived safety wise maybe is you're not just like hanging off a tree for the guys that don't like heights the stand yeah. is a little bit more of a solid deal from a perceived the first you time you do it, it's kind of like a, whoa. <laughs> yeah, making sure you're caught before you lean back type yeah. of a deal. And that's the only thing that I would say maybe for a saddle I just thought of is you always have you have to make sure you're hooked how you're supposed to be. Yeah. Once well, hooked you, right in, you don't undo yeah. your tether when you're meant to undo your lineman's rope and double checking before you lean back yeah. that you're attached somehow. Again, same thing with the tree stand. You're going to want to make sure you're connected to the right thing, but I think that's more important with the saddle so you don't just lean back and go, oh, I forgot Mm -hmm. to hook everything type of deal. So I don't think there's any real big difference. It's just probably personal preference depending on what you want. Um, The next one is weight. The difference between weight. A saddle is way less for your money. That's the big one for, for me is weight and carrying it in. We like to move a lot, so that's why that's important to us is being able to not have a bunch of weight carrying in every time we move. So weight's huge for me. It's just your rope, your saddle, and your sticks. Yep. That you and a carry. platform, I mean, you're gonna carry you... your you're gonna carry your bow in or whatever your backpack, of course. But as far as stuff you need to get up the tree, is pretty is way less, and you can you can walk in with the saddle on, and your ropes on. That's how we do. Just wrap everything around you, so then you're not hardly carrying anything but sticks and whatever's in your backpack. Mm-hmm. So that makes the tree saddle, in my opinion, way less of a weight factor than a tree stand although they are making some pretty light tree stands but still more than a saddle yep and i think a lower profile too and it kind of goes with weight where it's just your saddle there isn't enough sticking out catching on sticks when you're trying to sneak through the woods that kind of goes with the weight thing too yeah and i thought there really wasn't much of a difference because i got a pretty light lone wolf stand that i used for hanging hunt but then i went to back to using it a few times and you realize there is a is a difference just how, much, eight how pounds make, make a big difference, difference. It is on your shoulders and like yeah. you don't have that <laughs> you feel like you can walk anywhere and as long as you need to <laughs> or with the stand you're like i'm gonna need to get to my spot and take this thing off yeah because with the saddle you're just kind of walking you don't feel like you're carrying yeah. i don't know there's a difference between walking and carrying with the saddle i feel like i'm walking with the stand i feel like i'm carrying Mm-hmm. Um kind of in the same vein but though the saddles are less bulky so if you're you know in hilly terrain or out west or something or you're going through cedars, under cedars, trying to get into that far out of the way spot or just in the dark looking for, you know, where you're gonna put your tree stand up, you're not getting caught on crap. So just that less bulk that you're carrying, you don't have something out past your shoulders or whatever, find it easier to navigate with just a saddle when I'm looking for, in the dark, looking for stuff or walking in or out, it's easier with that saddle because there's not that bulk that the tree stands have that you're just not gonna get away from with the tree stand. Uh, Stands, like I said, stands are getting smaller but the smaller they get, there's still more of a safety issue. So you can, you know, have a teeny tiny platform, but then where you're gonna stand? I prefer a little bit larger platform yeah. if I'm gonna get up. They in get the more tree expensive stand. too. So Not that saddles are cheap. Yeah, when you get everything together with it. So um, the next one is just being seen. What do you? Is it? Do you get seen more in a tree stand or a tree saddle? Uh, based off of the YouTube commenters, people tell me I get seen in my tree <laughs> with my saddle all <laughs> on, which I don't think. I don't think it's the case. I think I've actually been seen less with that because I can slink up to the tree and hide I mean there's deer that'll walk past and not see me and they're like right there and then there's deer that'll walk past and point me out right away it's like it's just a deer thing and it's just your setup whether you got cover behind you and that kind of thing I think that's the bigger thing it's not whether it's a tree stand or a saddle it's what your setup looks like and if you've got cover to hide you because we've gone from 25 feet up to 10 feet up and they've missed us both times and they've seen us both times yeah, like you said, it all just depends on where and how that you're setting up. Yeah. Because it doesn't... And movement. Yeah, because with a stand, you can set up behind the tree, then there's no way they're going to see you. I don't like setting up like that because I can't see it. I'm just looking at a tree the whole time. But if you set up like that, you're probably good. But if it comes in behind you, same And it's, and it's where they come from. I, I can expect them to come in front of me, but if they come to my left, they might peg me because they can see me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's some of that too. Like if they come from where I want them to come from every time we're fine. They won't smell me or see me or anything. That's a good thing about the saddle. You mentioned it a little bit before, but you can just, you can always kind of get off to the side and if it's a doe and you're like, okay, like for us, we got film over. We're good. She's getting closer. Let's just hug up to this tree as close as we can. Just keep that tree between us. I've done that tons of time. You Mm -hmm. do it all the time and they can't see you because you're through the tree gives you a little bit more rotation around than a typical tree stand does. So Mm -hmm. it's all just how you use it. Like you said, movement. We've been in a tree stand, not very high up talking, after a bunch of deer came through, looked down, there was a spike buck literally right under us. And we didn't even know it. And we were talking and moving and you didn't see us. Yeah. And we've been far away and had deer see us. So it's all, like you said, deer dependent, situation dependent. It's more of a, like you, you said it perfectly, it's more of a setup deal than what kind of, you know, application, what kind of equipment that mm-hmm. you're using. Um, and then comfort, I guess is probably the big one uh, for a lot of people. Comfort and weight. Um, but for me, if I have to do an all-day sit, I'm sitting in a stand for sure. Yeah, I'd, I I kind of go back and forth on this because I've never used a platform because it's extra weight I have to carry in and with all the camera stuff, I don't want to carry that extra weight in. I think that would help a ton if we used regular old platforms and got our feet on platforms and not just sticks, I think. And getting getting your setup, your saddle setup configured to how you like to use it and know where to put it on your hips, I think, helps. But I think... I might agree. If I'm sitting there for a very, very, very long time all day, I might want to sit in a stand, but I kind of go back and forth on that. Yeah. I just can't sit in a saddle for like two or three hours and I start to move around too much. That's true. Some of it's (laughs) I got to put some knee pads in my pants and I think that will help. So I'm not pushing against the tree, you know, with the Mm -hmm. bark and stuff, that'll help. Um, But like I said, two or three hours in a saddle and then I have, I move around too much. I don't know what you know what the deal is but I'd, and like you said if i get it set up correctly i can probably i could extend it a little bit more sometimes i don't get it where i need to um so that definitely helps knowing what your saddle is and knowing you know height yeah. and how much rope and all that good stuff but if i to sit all day or something i want to sit in a stand at least i can stand straight up and then i can sit down on an actual seat but i don't but then the problem is you know carrying the stand in all the stuff that the saddle is better does that make a difference and how much does yeah. that offset because i i hate the up and down portion of getting my stand in the tree and then when it's cold out and it's dark and i gotta take my stand my hands down are cold and yeah <laughs> when i can just climb down with the tree saddle but it's that middle gap of the actual sitting and hunting where the tree stand yeah is and for me i think i will suffer through being a little bit uncomfortable if i don't have it set up right as opposed to the hauling it in and and that kind of thing for me and I think. That's one thing I've learned with saddles is don't be afraid to adjust how you're set up. Like try to try something different with your tether. Try something different with where it's at on your hips or looseness or tightness or how tight you got the belt. Try to change that. Even if you're hunting and you're like, you know, a little in the action and like I can move a little bit here. Let me readjust this. Don't be afraid to readjust it and play with it a little bit and try to figure out, you know, what setup works best for you, tether height, all kinds of things. Because even every tree you get in is going to be different. Yep. And the last one here is shooting. So to be completely honest, I would rather shoot from a tree stand than out of a tree saddle. It's just I think I'd agree. But it's purely just a comfort what I've done and a comfort thing. If mm-hmm. I shoot out of a tree saddle for the next 10 years, I'm probably going to come back and tell you I'd rather shoot out of a tree saddle. It's just a pure comfort and experience thing that I'd rather shoot out of a stand, sitting on flat standing on flat ground, whatever. Yeah, I think I'd rather have my like you said at this point, I'd rather have that strong base, I think. But I feel like When a deer comes in, you completely forget about pretty much everything that's going on. So I think when the deer comes in, I'm just going to like pull it back. Like you're going to forget that you're not on a stand and you're just on your sticks. I think you'll, I think you'll be fine when that comes through. But I think I'd agree. At least for now, the comfort level is with a stand. Yeah. And that's just, that can be completely nullified and not matter whatsoever. So that's not a, you know, anything for, for stands or against tree saddles because you can make it either way. That's just something that can be nullified, but just for us. Personally, right now, a stand is probably better. Again, everything, we talked about it before, person-dependent, situation-dependent. We use both throughout the season. We'll probably continue to use both depending on the situation. Trying to get in a cedar tree, obviously, uh, that makes it really hard to get a tree saddle in. We have a bunch of those here in Nebraska, so it's all situation-dependent. We use both. We'll continue to use both. We like things Good and bad from both. Yep. And we went out west last year and we threw saddles in and tree stands in. And we used both on the hunts. So, yeah, we still use both. It's just another tool you have. you are taking a long walk, you might want a saddle. If you're going in a cedar tree, you might want a stand. Just, you know, what works, another tool for you to use. Weighing the pros and cons of each one for each situation. Yep. Kind of want to take a quick break here. Take a moment to let you know how you can support the Out Here Show. So we don't have sponsors. We want to keep it that way. The best way for you guys that are watching to support the show is to go to whitetailinstinct.com. Check out that website. We have a bunch of apparel over there, t-shirts, sweatshirts, and a bunch of new stuff in the works that we're designing right now. Um, So head on over there, see if you can't find something that you like. Support the show. That way we can keep doing this. Keep providing videos on our Whitetail Instinct channel. Keep making videos here. So if you want to support the show, we'd really appreciate it, guys, if you'd go over there, check out some of the apparel, maybe pick something up for yourself. And moving on here quick before we wrap it up, um, just something in, it was a outdoorlife.com article, that you're saying that we need more casual hunters. And that's something that I've seen on other podcasts specifically, not really so much on the shows, but just on social media and stuff, um, of just guys saying, like, I just don't understand how people hunt whitetails casually. I listened to a podcast recently, and they had a whole big talk on that, and it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You know, something to that effect If I don't understand how people can just casually do it and only do it, you know, four days out of the year type of deal. Um, And I think the guys that are saying that just have to realize that they're in the 1% of deer hunters that are able to hunt pretty much every single day. That kind of comes off as, at least to me, as a holier-than-thou statement. Not really thinking about how they've been blessed with the ability to meet the people they've met and, you know, get the connections that they have and have the jobs that they have that allow them to do that. And I think that's a similar point to what you made. Not everybody's in the situation that they're in, not everybody's in the situation that we are. We're blessed to be able to do it on the weekends and have jobs. We don't have families right now, so we can go on the weekends. We don't have soccer games and all this other stuff that we have to go to that a lot of other people do. So I think, like you said, to me, it comes across as not not really taking a step back and understanding the situation they're in and the situation others are in. And we understand you have a passion for it. It's obvious when they're, you have a podcast. But it's don't take away from the passion of the guy that only hunts five days a year. He may enjoy it just as, as much as, as you, you do, do for those five days because he only gets five days. Yep. So that doesn't mean... I mean, he might you don't be on, understand yeah. how they can only hunt whitetails casually. Maybe they have to hunt whitetails casually because they, they're have all family. Working for their family so that their family can do the things that their family wants to do, or they can pay the bills for their house. Like I said, just because you only hunt four days instead of 14 doesn't mean you're any less passionate or good at hunting as a guy that hunts, you know, three months out of the year and has a podcast and a show. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there just got to realize you're in the 1%. You know, not everyone has your fancy gear, your fancy time, and that's, or your fancy time, your time of amount of time to be able to do it And that's great that you have that. No one's bashing the amount of time or effort you put in. It's just realize that it takes, it literally takes all of us. I mean, we go back to football. We use football references all the time. But football, NFL football, needs college football, needs high school football, needs peewee and midget football. So all the guys that don't play past high school football are still helping the guys that make it to the NFL because without playing us or having us on your team in midget football, you wouldn't have a team. So same thing with, you know, hunting. It takes the casual guys to still spend money on Browning trail cameras and watch your show on YouTube or watch. Yeah, exactly. Specifically watching your show. So, or buying the gear to keep the companies in business that you buy gear from. So it it takes everybody. So I don't know that they mean it like that. I just want them to understand that it kind of comes off, you know, as that. So I just kind of wanted to talk about it, bring it up and just thought it needed repeated that. You know, we all need to stick together as hunters. I'm not pointing them out, you know, as being bad or being anything like that. I just think, you know, take a little time to think it through maybe a little bit more. And there was a whole meat-eater fiasco with that that article of needing more hunters and not needing more hunters and not wanting more hunters and it's ruining my hunting and that kind of thing. And I think, I don't know, I still think it. for me it boils down to having more people on your side, supporting the things you support, is never a bad thing. Yeah, I mean... Like I said, we all need to stick together. We need as many hunters as we can get, and a casual hunter isn't an anti-hunter. Yeah. Uh, That simple. So let's keep everybody on the same side, and I think we should be good. So anything else on that topic as we wrap up this episode? Nope, I should be good to go. All right, that will wrap up this episode of the Out Here Show. Remember that we have our Whitetail Instinct channel. If you want to check out all the off-season stuff we've been doing, deer season is going to be here. You can buy permits today, I seen in Nebraska, or yesterday. Um, is going to be here in like four weeks. So we're going to have, you know, deer hunting content going up on that channel. So go to the White Tail Instinct channel, subscribe to that one, and uh, watch those videos. You can watch all our hunts from years past and all that good stuff too. Um, the Out Here Show is every Monday at noon central. So you can keep coming back for this podcast. We're going to update on you, know, the hunting industry stuff, a bunch of, you know, topics that we like to talk out or hash out. Um, but thanks for watching, guys. Make sure to keep tuning back in.